can see in your bulletin that we turn again now to the book of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 21. Today we're finally back to this book. Today we begin to run the home stretch in 2 Samuel. I guess if we really want to feel the force of it, we'd say that we're running the home stretch of 1st and 2nd Samuel. We've been at these two books for a while now. It's been a long time since the last Sunday when we turned to this book. It was March 20th, nearly a month and a half ago. I'll, I'll spare you a lengthy review. Sufficient to say that when we left off in 2nd Samuel, we had just made our way through various rebellions that David had faced as king. We spent several Sundays on the rebellion that his own son Absalom launched against him. And then after that, we spent just one Sunday on the rebellion that a man named Sheba launched against him. In both cases, in different ways, in different circumstances, but in both cases, the Lord protected his anointed one. The Lord brought down those who rose up against his anointed king. So that's where we left off in 2 Samuel a while ago. We'd made our way to the end of chapter 20. That brings us to this Sunday. We pick up at the beginning of chapter 21. So we've got four chapters left in 2 Samuel. I think it's fair to say that these four chapters that we've got left, they feel like a kind of epilogue at the end of the whole book. Most commentators discuss these four chapters as a separate section at the end. One commentator even calls this section an epilogue. Another commentator refers to this section as an appendix, chapters 21 through 24. And it's not unreasonable to refer to this last section of the book like that. It is a collection of material that stands apart. It doesn't always continue the storyline that we've been following all along. It includes some material that doesn't really fit into a storyline in the first place. We've got poems and halls of fame. So it's not unreasonable to refer to this last section of the book as an epilogue or an appendix. But whatever we choose to call it, whatever label we come up with, to refer to these last four chapters, it's worth underlining that these are valuable passages that we've got here at the end of 2 Samuel. This is no throwaway material by any stretch. You've got some important recurring themes in these last four chapters. We get to know David better in these chapters. In particular, we get to know David better in these three ways. A king whose reign was characterized by some calamity that he had to deal with. Also, a leader who was served by valiant men. And also, a poet who gave expression to his faith. Over the course of this last section, we're going to get to know David better in all three of those ways. A king whose reign was characterized by some calamity, 
a leader who was served by valiant men, and a poet who gave expression to his faith. So you've got those recurring themes in these last four chapters. We get to know David better. And not only that, but there does appear to be a kind of structure in the way these last four chapters are set up. If you're the kind of person who likes letters as labels, it's it's what we might call an A-B-C-C-B-A pattern. In other words, it's a mirror. On the outside of this whole section, the bookends, you've got two passages that have to do with David as a king whose reign is marked by some calamity that he's got to deal with. Next, inside, you've got two passages that have to do with David as a leader who was served by valiant men. And then on the inside, right next to each other, you've got two passages that display David one more time as a poet. So that's another reason why Folks have tended to think about these last four chapters as a distinct section. They're set up that way. There appears to be a structure in the way all this material is gathered and arranged. So that's a little bit about where we're headed over the course of these next four chapters. That's an overview. You can see in your bulletin, this morning we're going to cover chapter 21. And in this chapter alone you've got several of those recurring themes that I just mentioned. First, David facing difficulty. And second, David served by valiant men. So let's listen now to chapter 21. Hear now the word of God. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord, and the Lord said, There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house, because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. And David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you, and how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? The Gibeonites said to him, It is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house, neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, What do you say that I shall do for you? They said to the king, The man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel... Let seven of his sons be given to us, so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. The king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bore to Saul, Armoni and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Merab, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Maholathite, and he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord. 
and the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of harvest at the beginning of barley harvest. Then Rizpah, the daughter of Aya, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until rain fell upon them from the heavens. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night. When David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Aya, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hanged them on the day the Philistines killed Saul on Gilboa. And he brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan, and they gathered the bones of those who were hanged. And they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin and Zelah in the tomb of Kish, his father. And they did all that the king commanded. And after that, God responded to the plea for the land. There was war again between the Philistines and Israel. And David went down together with his servants, and they fought against the Philistines. And David grew weary. And Ishbi Benob, one of the descendants of the giants whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze and was armed with a new sword, thought to kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, You shall no longer go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. After this, there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sibachai, the Hushathite, struck down Saph, who was one of the descendants of the giants. And there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. And Elhanan, the son of Jairi, Oregon, the Bethlehemite, struck down Goliath, the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And there was again war at Gath. And there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number, and he also was descended from the giants. And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, struck him down. These four were descended from the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. So this is the word of our God, Second Samuel 21. Let's go to the Lord now in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word, for the whole of your word, all of its parts and passages, even the passages that challenge us, the ones that require especially the engagement of our minds as we think, as well as our hearts, as we feel, that with our whole selves we might believe and live. So we pray that you would guide us now as we seek to make sense of these things, but not simply to make sense of them, also to be changed by them. For we would be changed and made more like Christ, and we pray in his name. Amen. So chapter 21 today. As I said before, in this one chapter... We've got several. We've got two of those recurring themes that I mentioned before. David is a king who faces difficulty, 
David as a leader served by valiant men. And in both cases this morning, if you think about those two parts of our chapter today, David facing difficulty in verses 1 through 14, and David served by valiant men in verses 15 through 22, in both cases we read some things that might make us say, wait, what? Did I, did I read that right? Yeah, I, I read that right. I don't get it. In both cases, we read some things that might make us pause and make us wonder and make us go searching for explanations. But that's one of the beauties of the Bible. Let's bless it for that reason, that it does challenge us, that it practically forces us to lean in and to think about what we just read so that we can make sense of it as well as we can, and learn from it. And that's certainly the case this morning. So let's take these two sections in order. First section, verses 1 through 14, justice for the Gibeonites. Second section, verses 15 through 22, David's valiant men. So let's take those two in order. First section, verses 1 through 15, justice for the Gibeonites. Now... In order to understand what's going on here in this section of the chapter, you've got to back up to the book of Joshua. You don't need to turn there right now if you don't want. I'll read for us. I'm going to read for us from Joshua chapter 9. There's an allusion here in 2 Samuel 21 to something that happened back in Joshua 29, and it'll be good for us to hear it. So when you go back to Joshua 9... This point, the people of Israel are conquering the promised land. Under the leadership of Joshua, the armies of Israel are conquering mighty armies that are coming against them in the promised land. And, and word is getting out. The inhabitants of the land are hearing about it, and understandably, they're trembling. So the Gibeonites come up with a strategy to survive. Joshua 9, beginning at verse 3. When the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn-out and torn and mended, with worn-out patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes. You get the idea. There's a whole lot that's worn out here. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. And and it goes on from there in Joshua 9. The Gibeonites developed their lie in great cunning detail. Until finally this, Joshua made peace with them. And made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. So the Gibeonites pulled it off. They they got the Israelites, Joshua and the Israelites, to believe that they were not inhabitants of the land, but that they'd come from far, far away. Keep going in Joshua 9. At the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors. And that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. The people of Israel did not attack them, 
Because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. All the leaders said to the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. That's Joshua chapter 9. Joshua says, we will let them live lest wrath be upon us. Because of the oath that we swore to them. That's Joshua chapter 9. And and note that. They're saying, we we forged this covenant with them. Even though they lied to us. We forged this covenant with them now. And we're bound to honor it. Lest wrath come upon us. Joshua chapter 9. So that covenant was made. The people of Israel were bound to honor it. Permanently, the promise that they wouldn't attack them. Well, at some point, it's not recorded for us in the Scriptures, but at some point, Saul, as king, must have violated that covenant. He broke that promise. Must have attacked the Gibeonites after all. And apparently did so, planning to obliterate them entirely. And now, all these years after that, under David as king, that violation, that transgression has remained unresolved. There's still guilt for that covenant breaking that remains unresolved. God, God who is holy, who's just, who's faithful, who stands by his word, that mattered. And so... Things unfold this morning as we've heard. God brings about a famine that lasts three years in order to get David's attention, in order to draw David's attention to this particular unresolved past transgression. David gets the message, seeks the Lord. David takes action, takes action in order to address the blood guilt that hangs over the house of Saul. And sure enough, by the end of this passage, the famine is lifted. And by the time we reach the end of this passage, we might be saying, wait, what? These descendants of Saul are put to death for something that Saul did. We might even say, doesn't that run afoul of God's law? It says in God's law, this is straight from the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 24, Verse 16, it says this, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. That's Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 16. That's God's law. That's God's word. So what do we make of the fact that these descendants of Saul are put to death for something that Saul did? We can admit, this is not an easy passage to make sense of, to come to grips with. It's not even easy to read as you contemplate this unfolding of events. And there are a number of possible explanations as to how to make sense of this. Explanation number one. It's this. Well, these descendants of Saul were personally involved in attacking the Gibeonites way back when, and so here they're just getting what they deserved for their own sin. 
That's explanation number one. The problem with that explanation is, is that it's unlikely chronologically that all seven of these folks were personally involved in the sin that's being dealt with here. And it doesn't really do justice to what the passage says anyway. The way the Gibeonites put it here is to say that Saul is the one who is personally responsible. Therefore, give us seven of his descendants. It's not that these men were personally responsible themselves. It's simply that they descended from Saul. The Gibeonites don't even ask for anyone by name. They just say, give us seven. That'll do. That's explanation one. Here's a second. Explanation number two is this. There's something exceptional, there's something extraordinary about this particular episode in salvation history. It has to do with kings and kingdoms and national covenants. It doesn't have to do with ordinary fathers and sons and personal responsibility belonging to common human experience, and so that verse in Deuteronomy doesn't apply. That's explanation number two. To say that Deuteronomy 24 addresses an entirely different category altogether. Here's explanation number three. And by the way, if you open up to any study Bible, you're going to see a number of these explanations mentioned, which is why I think it's worth canvassing them here. Explanation number three goes like this. David was wrong entirely. I mean from start to finish to handle this the way that he did. Tried to resolve blood guilt, but ended up incurring blood guilt of his own. And the reason why that's an explanation that we can even entertain is something that we've noticed before as we've been making our way through First and Second Samuel, which is just because a Bible character takes a particular action, that doesn't mean that the action was right. Even if it's a Bible character who seems like a hero. Even if it's an action that seems to turn out well, that, that doesn't mean that the action was right. So here in this case, maybe it is the case that David was wrong from start to finish to handle this the way that he did. The problem with that explanation is that in this instance, God is the one who tells David that there's blood guilt on the house of Saul because of what Saul did. And God is the one who lifts the famine after David takes action. It's hard to imagine that God ends the famine if this is an instance in which David was completely in the wrong, especially after God's the one who tells David what the problem is in the first place. There seems to be some kind of divine sanction, divine satisfaction in what's carried out here, as difficult as that is to contemplate. Here's one more, explanation number four. And this, I suppose, is an attempt to thread the needle. It goes like this. David was right to act, but David went too far in the particular way that he acted. In other words, David was right to take some action in order to address the blood guilt that was hanging over the house of Saul, but he shouldn't have done it like this. Should have found another way. Should have found a less bloody way. After all, the idea to hand it this way, that idea is not attributed to God in this passage. It comes from the Gibeonites. This was their idea, and David agrees to go along with it. So maybe, this is explanation number four, God was mercifully willing to lift the famine as a way of honoring the intention 
without sanctioning the particular act of putting these people to death. As I say, that's an attempt, I suppose, to thread the needle and to take into account everything that we've got here to wrestle with. Brothers and sisters, we can admit it's not entirely clear what to make of this passage. Explanation one, two, three, or four, or maybe some others that are out there. It's not perfectly clear, but that doesn't mean that there's nothing for us to take from this passage. Even if we are left wondering what to make of it, still we can take this much from it, this truth about God, that our God is a God who remembers and who forgives. To put it more pointedly, our God is a God who remembers sin and who also forgives sin. And both of those are important here. His remembering and his forgiving, his relenting. First of all, remembering whatever we make of this hard passage, God is displayed here as a God who remembers sin, a God who doesn't just forget when solemn covenants are broken. He didn't forget that Saul had broken this one just because time had moved on. And there was a new and better king. God hadn't forgotten. God doesn't always bring it to account in this life the way he does here. But that doesn't mean that he's forgotten. In our foolish moments, we might wish that he were a forgetful God. We might want God conveniently to lose track of our own past covenant breaking, but he's not that kind of God. And in our wise moments, we know that we wouldn't want him to be. Human beings, we forget and move on and often leave things unresolved. Isn't that characteristic of our dizzying hourly news cycle these days? All manner of sins are paraded for us in the news, and in the next hour we've moved on to something else and we forget. But God's not like that, and we wouldn't want him to be. These days you tune into the news. And you're immediately confronted with unfathomable wickedness and bloodshed. There would be no justice in the universe if the God of the universe were a God who just forgot and moved on. A God who left grievous sin and covenant breaking eternally unresolved. He's not that kind of God. And we can say, thank God that he's not that kind of God. So he remembers. That's the first piece. But then the second piece is that he does forgive. Again, whatever we make of this hard passage, God is displayed here as a God who is willing to deal mercifully with his people, a God who is willing to lift the judgments that he wants justly imposed, in this case, this famine. And for us as Christians... That leads us right to Christ and his cross and the forgiveness that's ours thanks to the cross. Certainly not saying that these men who were put to death here were somehow forerunners of Christ and of his cross. We're not claiming that. But still, we're driven there. To our pardon, to the mercy from God that we've known, and we've known it because of the cross. And we're not left scratching our heads and wondering what to make of the cross, wondering if it was just. It was, absolutely. We can say so confidently. We can say so, for the Bible tells us so. 
That's why I read for us Romans 3 earlier in our service. Remember Romans 3. God put Christ forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Romans 3. You see, that's our hope. That's our resting place. Our comfort when it comes to our sin is not the thought that God maybe will forget. That he'll lose track. No, our comfort when it comes to our sin is that God has provided a just remedy for it. And that remedy is Jesus and the blood that he shed, the blood that he willingly shed. And that covers all our sins, even the ones in our past that we've forgotten. So we go to the cross and there we see it's so clearly revealed that God is a God who forgives justly. And it's in that light that we can wrestle with a passage like 2 Samuel 21. Even if it's hard to make sense of it, we can still trust that God is just and that he acted justly in that episode because we fix our eyes on the cross and it reminds us, oh, that's right. Oh, that's right. He's just. So even if I struggle with this or that passage, I don't have to struggle in such a way that I'm left throwing up my hands wondering if he's just. Abraham asked that pointed question, shall not the God of all the earth do right, do justly? And the answer is yes, absolutely, of course, every time. We say that in light of the cross. And it's in that light that we read the Bible from start to finish. All that to say, brothers and sisters, it's true. There are a number of suggestions as to how to understand this passage. But don't let that keep you from learning what's here to be learned, which is that our God is good. In both of these two ways that we just looked at, he's good in that he justly remembers, and he's good in that he mercifully relents. So that's the first section of the chapter. Justice for the Gibeonites. A reminder that our God is good and we can rest in that. Even if at times in reading the Bible and in reading our own lives, we're not entirely sure how that's true. He's good. He's good. So that brings us to our our second section this morning. I'll touch on this one a bit briefly. David's valiant men. This is the second section of the chapter, beginning at verse 15. David's valiant men. It's a little Israelite hall of fame. These several soldiers who served David and their valiant exploits against the Philistines. The piece in here that might make us say, wait, what? Is right there in verse 19, where it says that a man named Elhanan struck down Goliath. We all know it was David. What gives? Will you be surprised to hear that a variety of explanations have been offered? And you can find them if you open up your study Bible and read the notes. Explanation number one. Elhanan was a different name for David. That's been suggested. And if you go with that, then you've got to come up with an explanation as to why his father 
is not named Jesse. In any case, that case has been made. Explanation number two is that there's something missing from our text here, which is that Elhanan didn't kill Goliath. He killed the brother of Goliath. And that got left out of the text here. That could be. That, that's not implausible, given the fact that the text of First and Second Samuel has a few verses where there are issues like that. Could be. Explanation number three. The name Goliath might have been fairly common among the Philistines. For that matter, it might have been a kind of title and not just a name. So, yeah, verse 19 gives us pause, but there are plausible explanations as to how to sort it out. In any case, we can say it again here, just like we said with the first section of the chapter. Don't let the unclear things in this passage distract you from the clear lessons that you can learn from it. And in this case, we can learn again about our God, which is that our God is a God who provides valiant servants in the cause of his anointed one. And we'll see this again when we take up this same theme later in this last section of the book. Our God is a God who provides valiant servants in the cause of his anointed king. And brothers and sisters, servants of King Jesus, that's still true. Now God's anointed one is Jesus, seated on high. And obviously Jesus, seated on high, isn't needy the way David was. David needed his valiant men to protect him. Jesus doesn't need us like that. But still it's true to say that God raises up valiant servants in the cause of his Christ. And it's not just outstanding heroes. It's not just the occupants of the hall of fame of faith, whether recorded for us in the pages of Scripture or in the annals of church history ever since. It's any one of us. It's you and me. By His grace, God works in you and me a measure of courage to serve Him, to stand for Him, to stand for His cause. There are passages like this in the Bible, passages in which folks are held up for us to admire, folks who exhibited remarkable courage in outstanding ways, in extraordinary moments. And friends, that should not discourage us. That shouldn't leave us thinking, oh, I can never be like that, simply because these folks shine in the way that they do. No, to the contrary, that should encourage us. That should leave us thinking, That's a picture of what I can and ought to be by the grace of God. There's something reassuring. There's something even thrilling about the thought that I'm a kindred spirit with these heroes. That's actually ennobling and not discouraging. For me, it's the same thing with sports. It's a pretty safe bet that Roger Federer would beat me in a game of tennis. Take those odds. But one of the things that's thrilling for me about watching him play, and I'm still hoping he'll get back on the court before this calendar year is over, is the thought, yeah, Roger and me, we play the same game. That's ennobling. That's a kind of camaraderie. That's a sense of kindred spirit. That's why when I'm out on the court and I hit a satisfying one-handed backhand, 
And I think it's happened like three times in my life. But when it happens, I just pump my fists and exclaim, Federer! And then I'm so excited the ball comes back from the other side and I miss it and lose the point. But it was worth it to hit that shot and then to say, oh, Roger, Federer. Like, oh, yeah, Roger and me. Yeah, we, we both got that backhand going. Though I know there is a practically infinite gulf between him and me. There's, there's this sense of connection across the gulf. For me, it's the same thing with music. I listen to the, the songs of the great songwriters. I listen to the guitar playing of the great guitarists. And that doesn't leave me thinking, oh, I quit. I could never be that good. No, it leaves me thinking, cool. I do that too. I write, I play, I sing. I, I get it. I, I inhabit that world in my own way. Yesterday, I, I found myself watching... Um, a YouTube video, it was a young, a young-looking, young-sounding Paul Simon being interviewed by Dick Cavett. How's that for a blast from the past? This was right after Bridge Over Troubled Water had come out. And it's a young, soft-spoken Paul Simon. I mean, so soft-spoken that at one point in the interview, he literally says, am I speaking too softly? Like he wasn't used to the attention. But the interview was absolutely fascinating. Here is one of the great pop folk songwriters of the 20th into the 21st centuries. And he's sitting there on the sofa next to Dick Cavett talking about how he writes songs. And he reaches over and he grabs a guitar and he starts demonstrating how he wrote Bridge Over Troubled Water and all the influences that went into it. It was absolutely fascinating. And I didn't stop the video and think, that's it, I quit. I could never do that. No, I leaned in and thought, yes, that's pretty cool. Paul and Paul, yeah, we, we, we both do that. Something, something ennobling, something stirring about that. We tour these halls of fame. And there's actually a sense of connection with the folks who are enshrined there. And that's stirring to see in them a display of what is and what ought to be true in our own experience. So, brothers and sisters, when you read about David's valiant men, David's giant killers, for that matter, whenever you come across any one of these passages in the Bible, passages in which folks are held up for you to admire, remarkable courage and outstanding ways and extraordinary moments, just remember the God who made them courageous The God who gave them victory, he's your God too. And by his grace, he's raising you up too. Same God, same grace. So let's seek it. Let's seek him and we'll find it. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your grace at work. Working courage in us, the call of your word is be strong and courageous, left to ourselves. We wouldn't be, but you have not left us to ourselves. 
but you are working strength and courage in us as well as the servants of King Jesus. May your word stir us to that end as we see great courage and might on display and blessed by you. Father, we worship you today as a just God, a God who doesn't forget the sins of the past and yet a God who is willing to deal mercifully with sinners in the present. So we say today that you are good. Even as we wrestle with your word, we would not shrink back from the conviction, from the confession, and we confess it now that you are good. And we pray that you might ever guide our steps as students of the scriptures, that we might see it ever more clearly. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.